Hello and welcome to The Devil's Party. I'm Anthony Oliveira, PhD, culture critic, dumpster raccoon, and this week, <laughs> oh boy, it's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, I think maybe the most iconic image, maybe from the whole of the Book of Revelations, certainly the most written about. <laughs> I had a lot of fun digging through truly an, an insane amount of literature to prep for this one. So sorry it's a few days late, but if you saw the mountain of stuff I dug through for this one, um, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, okay, so we're in chapter six of the book of Revelations and the creepy lamb with the seven horns and eyes and all that and is dead and alive. Um, he's busting open those seals, the seven seals. You've heard so much about them your whole life. Obviously you expect them to be uh, a major part of the book of Revelations? Well, not really. We're going to burn through six of the seven all just this week. Um, as with many of the images of seven, in fact, almost all the images of seven in the book of Revelations, um, they get subdivided into a group of four and a group of three. Um, so as the lamb sort of starts thumbing out, I guess he doesn't have thumbs, he's a lamb, but as he starts <laughs> breaking open the seals on the scroll that he has taken from the one who sits on the throne, um, a bunch of stuff happens every single time he busts open one of these seals. The first four are going to let loose uh, what are commonly called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um... Seal 5 is going to wake up the martyrs who are sleeping under the throne. And Seal 6, the sixth seal, is going to trigger a kind of, you know, the movie, all that, um, is going to trigger a kind of uh, cosmic cataclysm, the sort of catastrophic, uh, all the images you'd expect when you encounter uh, the end of the world. In fact, images we've seen before on this podcast, if you have been following along since we did um, the Gospels, uh, there is a section of the Gospel of Mark and therefore Matthew and Luke uh, that gets called the Olivet Discourses. Uh, discourse. It's really just one speech from Jesus that is wildly out of character with the rest of the Gospels in which it appears, in which Jesus gives... Um, an apocalyptic vision, and there's been a lot of material written comparing the Olivet Discourse with the events of Revelation. It's kind of fun to try to piece together if the author of Revelation has anything like the gospel at hand, or if indeed he and Jesus are both using pre-existing Jewish apocalypse material to write their own apocalypse. Obviously, Jesus did not record the Olivet Discourses. But anyway, we're going to get there after we've dealt with these horsey boys. Um, then I saw the lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures call out, as with a voice of thunder. A detail I have never noticed before, uh, and indeed has puzzled many scholars working on revelations in the last 1900 years, um, is that the... Uh, four horsemen seem to correspond in some mysterious way to the four creatures. Uh, the, you know, the, the weird Ark of the Covenant angel things hovering around the throne. The, the one that's a lion, the one that is some kind of cattle beast, some kind of ox or something, calf. Um, the one that is a man and the one that is an eagle. Um... It doesn't highlight which which beast summons which 
a horseman. Um, if they are in the order that they were introduced, uh, then it goes lion, calf, man face, countenance of a man, and eagle. Um, so we can think about that as we go through them, which means if they are in the corresponding order, then this is the lion face summoning, which you'll remember corresponds to Mark, always easy to remember because San Marco Square in Venice, uh, and or because it begins in the wilderness, right? Um, okay, he says, he calls out, come. Um, now, some versions may say, come and see. That's a different line. Is he saying, come to the rider or come and see to John is something you kind of have to decide. And it's very clear that different copies of this text and different copyists have thought it went in different ways. I looked and there was a white horse. Its rider had a bow a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Okay, um, what, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, I mean, in some ways, in some ways you kind of have to read all four to start to make meaning of them. Um, but they're so pop culture familiar to us that we'll, I'll sort of extrapolate, and we'll just go through them one by one. So what do we know? White horse um, has a bow a crown, and he's a conqueror. What is this? Um, there is quite a bit of uh, debate about all of them. <laughs> it would be an understatement. But this one is particularly hard to triangulate and has maybe the thorniest um, uh, sequence uh, nexus of images to parse. One of the reasons this one is hard to parse is that it is not overtly negative in its depiction here. Um, it's hard to come down against John, as we know, a figure who has used the word conquer almost exclusively, positively, uh, is now using it here for this figure. He's a, he's a conqueror. Um, the other reason it's hard to triangulate this one's meaning is that Jesus shows up as a rider on a white horse later in Revelations 19. Uh, and he looks a lot like this. He doesn't look a thing like Jesus. I guess a phrase I'm going to be using a lot on this podcast. Uh, actually, um, no, I'll get there later. Uh, <laughs> but he looks like this in Revelations 19. Irenaeus, the, the church father, thought this was Jesus, this writer. Um, I don't think it is. I think that and the reasons to think of it as positive is like, if you like the idea of Christianity conquering, then this is a great image for you. Obviously, John does. But I do think in presenting it in the six seals, we are meant, seven seals, we are meant to see this as some kind of judgment from God on the world. In the same way that the other three are horrible calamities, this one must be a horrible calamity. And I am definitely not alone in thinking so. Um, in fact, uh, one of the most ingenious and I think actually quite beautiful images or interpretations of this is that it looks like Jesus because it's the Antichrist, which is a very fun and spooky uh, echo, right? Like the Antichrist shows up and he looks like the way Jesus is going to look. He's like this kind of parody before the real, right? There's something wonderful about that as a reading of this figure. Um, he is classically interpreted 
as being pestilence. He is uh, the figure of disease. One of the four calamities that befalls humanity is illness, is um, plague. Um, the there's a few ways that works. If you look ahead to after all of the the um, the riders are announced, it says specifically. Let me just ooh, flip my thingy here. Um, at the end of Hades and Death, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, and pestilence, and by the wild animals of the earth. That line, even though it's kind of pretty clear that it's actually referring to the fourth horseman death, has been retroactively used to read the four horsemen. It's like, oh, one must be pestilence, one must be famine, etc., etc. The problem with that is like, and then there's wild beasts. <laughs> and there's nowhere to map wild beasts onto these four. Um, the other way to read this, if we, if we keep riding the idea of this, oh, this must be pestilence, uh, the bow, right? Like, the bow is what Apollo uses to send plagues, right? He uses it in the Iliad. It's it's one of the things that gets used as an icon of spreading plague, right? Because it's sort of um, like being shot with a bow and arrow. It's kind of just hits a bunch of people around you in kind of an unpredictable sp spatter, right? Um, they don't have disease theory, but it's actually a great way of envisioning the way COVID spreads through a crowd, right? It's like being hit by an arrow, a volley of arrows. Um, but the one that I think this actually is, uh, is that I think, first of all, I, I want to say, I think we have generally misinterpreted the four horsemen. So I'm going to, as we go, keep putting my own spin on them. I think this is empire. I think the evil this represents is colonialism, is imperialism. It, and that's actually why it looks so attractive. Um, because that's what imperialism does. It presents itself as beautiful. I think one of the things that makes this thing so evil is that it presents, it doesn't obviously sign its maleficence. Um, the white horse is something Romans uh, rode to in uh, a victory procession. Um, the crown, obviously, very lovely. Um, one of the things people like to talk about is the Parthian Empire because they were horsemen who used bows and they were something feared by Rome. Um, that may be on John's mind, but I think this is actually an image of one of the worst things that humanity has ever done to itself, which is uh, empire, which is colonialism, which is the desire to conquer, right? It is conquest. Um, even if you're not convinced by like, that reading of it, it is explicitly, its job is to conquest. And even in a text that is pretty uh, positive about conquest, I think in this moment, John has a bit of a revelation, uh, sorry, about <laughs> about the, the negative horror of this thing. So that's my read on this one. I'm going to keep doing my little, my little spins on this. By the way, I feel like I should... Maybe here's a good place to append it. Um, we talked a lot about how uh, thoroughly Jewish um, John's references are here. And one of the ones you really have to look at when you're talking about the Four Horsemen is uh, chapter 6 of Zechariah. Um, it's this moment where he has a vision of God dispatching his emissaries, uh, four chariots. I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming from between two mountains of bronze. The first chariot had a red horse, the second black, the third white, 
and the fourth dappled. All of them, or sometimes you get sabled or gray there, um, all of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my lord? The angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the lord of the whole world. The one with the black horses is going towards the north, the one with the white towards the west, the one with the dappled towards the south. When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the earth, and he said, go throughout the earth, so they went throughout the earth. <laughs> then he called to me, look, those going towards the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. So um, what I think is cool and fun, uh, if we can use <laughs> <laughs> about the book of revelations is the way that he's playing with that right like that these things have become terrors in this configuration um okay uh, the, the second one's maybe the easiest um when he opened the second seal i heard the second living creature again in the scheme of the order they were initially introduced that's like the ox calf one um call out come and he came out and out came another horse now, my translation here, the Jewish New Testament, uh, the Jewish annotated New Testament, says bright red. Um, the word is actually literally like fiery red, like red like fire is like the, the Greek word used there. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another. And he was given a great sword. Uh, this one usually gets mapped to war. Uh, it's kind of... That seems like a good reading of it, except that the word it's using um, here rendered as to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, that implies a violence that is one-sided. That is to say that it, it's probably more like murder. Slaughter is actually actually a perfectly useful word for this one. Um and that actually lets you make a bit of a distinction between it and conquest, the one that came first, right? It's it's about what happens to the civilian rather than what, hap than what happens nation to nation, right? Um, it also often gets interpreted as specifically civil war because um, they're turning on one another and because the sword he's using, if you care about like sword types, it gets footnoted sometimes as being like oh that's like the sword romans used against each other that feels quite specious to me honestly um but i do think like this is about specifically what happens to the civilian right it's about um civil war is a good way of thinking about it i just like thinking of him as slaughter um but pretty easy to get right fiery red like blood red whatever you know that's easy to see uh massacre you know is another maybe good way of thinking about him um the ugly side of conquest, right? When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature call out. Again, if we're going in order, that's the man one. That's the Gospel of Matthew. Um, although sometimes he gets flippy-flopped with Luke. Um, but Matthew is the one that opens with the genealogy, right? Uh, again, like, is there something specifically Methian about this? Is there something particularly Lucan about war? Not really. Um, I don't think they, I can't make them mean in any ways that I find interesting. Maybe you can. Um, I heard the third living creature call out, come. I looked and there was a black horse. Its rider held a pair of scales in his hand 
and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a day's pay and three quarts of barley for a day's pay, but do not damage the olive oil and the wine. This is the one I find most interesting. Um, he gets consistently mapped to famine, um, and he is about starving. Uh, but what I find interesting and actually quite by accident had like a viral tweet about today, which I'm currently dealing with evangelicals who are mad at me about that one, is that there is nothing happening to the natural world here. His weapon is not like a blight. His weapon is not weather or worm. It is market manipulation. Um, his weapon is the scales. His weapon is price fixing. He's fixing the price of bread. He's Galen Weston. He's Pete Buttigieg. Um, he is market forces. He is economics. He is capitalism. Um, the the best image I found of this is Albrecht Durer's. If you look up his Four Horsemen, uh, famine is the most important one in the image. In fact, it's kind of hard to even notice the other three when you look at Durer's version of it. And his depiction of this figure, who, again, famine is not his name here, um, he's inflation. He's, uh, and in Durer's image, he's a capitalist. He's like a rich, sabled, he's like covered in furs. He's um, a figure that Durer knew well. He is sort of a, a power broker. He is a merchant. Um and that's what, how he starves the world here, um, is through this market manipulation of the price of wheat. A quart of wheat, which is what a person eats in a day, your measurement is going to be different in literally every translation you read, for a day's pay, literally a denarius, um, three quarts of barley for a day's pay. So you can choose. You can feed just yourself with wheat, or you can feed yourself and two family members with uh, apparently less nutritious barley. I'll have to take these many people's footnotes for it for granted. Um, and do not damage the olive oil and the wine. That to me is the real giveaway. Um, there's nothing happening to the natural world. It's just that, uh, someone has decided to starve it. Um, what's with the wine stuff and what's with the olive oil? Oh my God. I saw so much about this. People being like, Oh, the things of the sacred cannot be touched. It's like, I'm pretty sure actually bread is pretty important. Jesus wise guys. I also saw a lot of like, Oh, these are luxury items again. Like is wine a luxury item? If Jesus can have it whenever he wants and if his friends are having it whenever they want, I don't think it is a luxury item. I'm pretty sure wine is uh, a lot like beer in the medieval period, where it's like, that's just what everyone drinks because the alkalization makes sure it's safe to drink, right? Um, but there is a degree to which, you know, like, yes, rich people, the rich stay rich, right? It's easy, it's cheap to be rich. Like, rich people want these things uh, so they can they stay affordable, Um but it, I, actually, one of the things that was useful about uh, going viral today, not much ever is. But one thing that was pretty cool was uh, it directed me towards a uh, commentary that I can't wait to read, actually. Um, it's called Apocalypse, a People's Commentary on the Book of Revelation by the Chilean liberation theologian Pablo Richard, or I don't know how much... Richard, I don't know. Um, but I already ordered it and it's on its way and uh, we'll be consulting it among my many tomes going forward. Um, but yeah, this is uh, this is capitalism. This is famine. 
makes the world starve. The images of um, plenty of food, but no one can afford it, right? And you can see why the Joel Austin fans are not a big fan of this reading, right? Like, obviously, market forces and the invisible hand will make sure that everyone gets what they want. And it's like, how dare God release this kind of pestilential capital force on the world? Uh, number four. Are we on four? We are on four. Um, oh, the black horse. I don't know. Is there a way to make the black horse work, I, I guess? I mean, again, it's the image from Zechariah, right? It's one of the four colors. Uh, and he opened the fourth seal. I heard a voice, and again, of the fourth living creature, which would be the eagle, which would be John. Is John particularly deathy? I don't know. Uh, come. I looked, and there was a... And this word is really interesting. It's chloros. Um... Uh, pale green is the way the uh, the the Jewish annotated New Testament renders it, but it's chloros. It's the word that we still have in like chlorophyll and chlorine. Um, it's the color of uh, new growth, but it's also the color of death. It's the color of pallor. It's the color of lividity of the flesh. It's the color of when someone is struck pale or the cor a bloated corpse, right? It's that green. That's a cool spin he's putting on the, the sabled, the dappled horse in Zechariah, right? Why is it gray? And I've seen this literally translated as gray, pale, green, yellow. Um, Greek color is not quite like uh, our color, right? There's lots of essays you can read about that. Like, the way people theorize color is different in every culture, but this is chloros. It is... The, the paleness of death. Um, pale Rider, right? The, the Clint Eastwood movie. Um, pale Green Horse, its rider's name was Death. That's None of the other ones are named, you'll notice. And this renders it as, and Hades followed with him. Johnny Cash will give you, and Hell followed with him. But actually, the important emphasis is not that it's like, hilariously, it's not Christian Hell. It's Sheol. It's the realm of the dead. Um... And there's some good stuff, actually, in several Jewish commenters talking about how this pairing of death and the, the realm and Sheol, Mot and Sheol, um, is actually kind of uh, happens a lot in a lot of Semitic um, literatures, including like pre pre like Jewish Semitic cultures. Like there are Semitic gods of death and Sheol um, who travel together. Um, back when God was one of the pantheon that some of these cultures uh, were interested in. Um, and hell followed with him. This gets depicted in a lot of really cool ways, actually. Uh, I My favorite I saw was this Jehovah's Witness one where, like, death is, like, the, the hell following with him is, like, this kind of Gargamel-looking, like, spooky ghost <laughs> in a lot of medieval periods because the medieval period is very fond of thinking of Hades, the realm of the dead, is being like this personified mouth. So you'll often see a hell mouth following death in prediction and um, depictions of the four horsemen. I, by the way, as a side note, as a digression here, a lot of janky shit has happened to the Wikipedia on the four horsemen. And there's a lot of stuff in there that is simply false. Um, one of the things I saw that is absolutely false is the idea that 
Uh, it's only recent that the four horsemen have been depicted as negative, and it's only recent that um, conquest has been depicted as negative and been pestilence. He's been pestilence for a long time, um, and blaming it on recent 20th century readings is simply false. Like, even before I started reading all this stuff, I, you, there's very famous depiction. I mean, the Durer is one of them, of how uh, these are four bad dudes um, riding the earth. Um, then there's the line, and this one's interesting to me. How do you parse this? And hell followed with him. They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, and pestilence, and by the wild animals of the earth. Is that is that a summary paragraph about all four of them? Or is that about uh, Hades? Um, and the other way to ask that question, a different way to ask that question, is when it says a fourth of the world was given to them. Does it mean that all four of them control one fourth? Or do they each get a fourth of the world? Um, now, again, the classical interpretation of this takes it to mean that that's about all four of them. That sword, famine, and pestilence, that's where their names come from because it's each of them. But then you have to do something weird with wild animals of the earth. Um... If it's a fourth of the world, as some people take it to mean, some readings of this make it that the four horsemen are all aspects of Rome, and Rome controls a fourth of the earth, and that this is John being anti-Roman, that this is like, what is Rome really like? War Rome is conquest. Rome is slaughter. Rome is starving its population. And Rome is death. Um, that's one reading of the four horsemen. And it's it's worth remembering they are God's scourge, right? In fact, in chapter 7, um, it, they're literally called angels. So this is, we should understand them to be God's agents. Um, I Obviously, this these, these figures have obsessed popular culture. Um, I was thinking about some of my favorites today. <laughs> One of my absolute favorites is at the beginning of Terminator 2, when we're watching the kind of nuclear inferno happen. Um, and it's in like a children's park, right? Like it's in like a playground and we pan past the little um, like rocking horses and we pan past four rocking horses, right? On fire. It's great. Um, obviously as an X-Men fan, I grew up obsessed with Apocalypse, the X-Men villains, four horsemen, um, of which, you know, Warren Worthington was the most notable. The other three have not had much in the way of long lives as characters, unfortunately. Although the the lore behind Apocalypse's Four Horsemen has certainly grown in the last few years. If you've been missing out on the Krakoa era, turns out they're all Apocalypse's kids. Um, good omens. Obviously, the Terry Pratchett, uh, Neil Gaiman, really has a take on this, including the very Pratchett-y notion that, like, uh, pol pollution has replaced pestilence, right? Because... Um, in the wake of uh, penicillin, what <laughs> what is pestilence going to do? Um, Supernatural, the TV show, did a whole thing with them. You know, like, they're out there, Weird Al, you know, whatever. Um, but when we encounter them in the text, they don't map. They're not pestilence and war and famine, right? They are, I think, something a bit more interesting in each case. Okay, um... Next up, we have the fifth seal. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar 
the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood on the inhabitants of the earth? Uh, before God's response there, um, they're under the altar because that's where you deposit the blood of the slain, right? Like that's what an altar is, is a space to slaughter something, right? Um, and that's where uh, the sacrifice's blood goes. That's why it's under there. Um, if you know anything about church history, uh, you know that this is literal practice uh, in Catholic churches to this day. There is a space in every altar that is called the sepulchrum, um, and that's where you put the the bones of the saints, the bones of the martyr. You're supposed to have some relic, at least one, of a martyr, of a saint, inside every inside of every Catholic church. There's some human remains. I'm sorry to tell you. Um, this also reflects actual Christian practice in Rome, right? They were hiding in the catacombs, and they were literally um, celebrating on graves, right? That's... that's it's a very funny fact of Christian history that it ended up doing exactly what this text predicts. Um, some interesting theological points that emerge from this particular passage, actually, if you think about it. One of them that a lot of people like to point at, Contra, for example, people like John Milton, is that there is no soul sleep here, right? Um... There is no, when you die, you're still conscious, seems to be one of the implications of this. If you were developing a Christian uh, mythology, you would point at this and be like, look, see, Christians, when they die, don't just sleep until the resurrection. They're conscious, they're awake, they're um, uh, present and thinking and crying out for blood in this case. <laughs> the crying out for blood, by the way, a direct echo of Abel, right? Abel's blood in the soil, in the soil, cries out to God in Genesis. Um, it has been uh, also pointed out that this is a direct uh, contradiction of the idea of a rapture. Uh, if you have, if you're using a strict timeline of revelations, these martyrs presumably die after. Uh, these seals are opened, right? They are the the victims of, uh, in some readings, the victims of the four horsemen, uh, which means there is no rapture. I saw a lot of uh, people against the dispensationalists being like, look, see, people are suffering in this timeline. Um, so there you go. It is also frequently pointed out how spectacularly unchristian this prayer is. <laughs> Jesus dies on the cross saying, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Similarly, St. Stephen, the first martyr for Christianity, at least in many reckonings, um, also cries out to that they be forgiven and also hopes that his blood is not on the people who are killing them. Here, they're literally like, we would sure love some blood, God. Uh, and he gives the very upsetting response. Uh, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number would be complete. Both of their fellow servants, um, literally slaves, by the way, uh, his fellow servants is a euphemism people start adding later the word is slaves and of their brothers and sisters actually only brothers who were soon to be killed as they themselves had been killed uh wow god is using deaths as his countdown to the completion of history actually not horrifying but not unusual in a lot of jewish and uh christian uh, apocalypses um 
the white robes are fun, right? Like, obviously, a lot of symbolism there. We remember, you remember one of the churches was told to buy themselves some white robes. Um, a lot, some of the kookier versions of Protestantism love to say that these are their resurrection bodies. These are the superpowered bodies that people get in the resurrection. Like, the white robe is actually their new flesh. Um, very Cronenberg. <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm fond of a white robe if you remember our discussion of the Gospel of Mark and the Neoniscos who slips out of his white robe in Gethsemane. Um, that brings us to the sixth seal. Bum, bum, bum. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and there came a... Gr and this is just so good. Uh, and by the way, please check out the Olivet Discourses in Mark. You will see that a lot of this language is in there. Um, but that's not surprising since a lot of it is drawing actually from uh, the prophets. Um, okay, here we go. Uh, some great images here. I looked and there came a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, which is like black goat's hair that you put on for mourning. Um, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree drops its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll, rolling itself up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. I just want to, I want to think about some of those similes for a second, because the there's a lot of comments this week on the um, podcast message board well words podcast message board over on Patreon about how um, there's less philosophically happening in Revelations than in the Gospels and that's true but what I'm amazed by week after week is just how spectacular um, his images are and the poetry of his choices and I just want to unpack how cool some of these metaphors are technically similes, but like, <laughs> um, the sun became black as sackcloth. I want to think about specifically the semantic overload of each of these similes. Black as sackcloth is a way to describe a color, right? Like, how black is it? It's this black. But when you say something is as black as the goat's hair you put on to mourn, you've overloaded that metaphor Again, a simile, but whatever. Um, you've overloaded it with meaning that goes well beyond just the blackness, right? Similarly, I mean, became like blood. Okay, I get it. Like, it's red, but also, like, it's blood, right? That one maybe is worn with use. Uh, the, but look at the, the, the fig tree stuff. And the sky, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree drops its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. What are the stars falling like? They're like a tree dropping fruit too soon. Like there's a great way that that metaphor captures the idea of time suddenly running out, of time suddenly at an end, and things that you weren't ready for are happening suddenly. The winter fruit is like, it is, it's still coming in, right? It's not ready. It's not ready, but it's time for it to fall. You'll remember that <laughs> one of our favorite images from the Gospels was Jesus wanting a fig when it wasn't ready, right? And he cursed it and uh, condemned that tree. Um, 
for not having fruit when he wanted it. And here we see the spectacular cosmic version of that, where God has come for his fig fruits, and he's going to have them whether they're ready or not. It's really amazing. Similarly, the sky vanishing like a scroll, rolling itself up. I saw one commenter say it's like, um, if a scroll splits, because you remember the, the paper is quite brittle and thick, the scroll will just like seize and curl on itself, right? Like, again, like a sudden snap has come to history and the whole sky just unfurls. Like, what is that? What are we supposed to imagine? <laughs> like, <laughs> what does it look like to say the sky unfurls like a scroll rolling up? Like, what is behind it? It's literally the unveiling that we talked about as being what the word apocalypse means. The veil is gone. Whatever's behind the sky is exposed to us. Just spectacular stuff. Um, and again, we talked about this last week, the way he loves a logjam of ands. Um, then the kings of the earth and the magnates and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fallen us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Unbelievable, right? <laughs> like, is there a better more amazing poetic phrase than the wrath of the lamb, right? It's just like this wonderful juxtaposition of the impossible. And the, there's something Baroque about the way that language is just like jamming against itself. All these paradoxes and mismatches of images just like jamming one against the other. I don't have to tell you that, that in that list, guess how many? Seven, right? Of course. Um, okay. I think that's it for me on this one. Uh, I was just thinking about the Nina Simone song. Um, by the way, there's a, an image of a scroll rolling up in Isaiah. Like uh, Even as these are kind of wonderfully reworked, it, there's a footnote for almost all of them. <laughs> um, okay, that's it for these boys. Six seals down, one to go. Uh, but first, we get a little halftime show. Till then, thank you. Join us over on the Patreon, actually, um, because there's a lot of comments this week. <laughs> I've got to go deal with all those, including, once again, our good friends, the Mormons, who are up to no good, as usual. Uh, <laughs> but till then, thank you so much. Be brave enough to be kind. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.